This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Coming up on this episode of White Wine Question Time. I would go to the, the, the lab at the university and I would take 12 frozen piles of badger poo, which I'd collected the previous Sunday and stored in our freezer at home, my mother's freezer, um, separate from the peas and carrots, of course. Um, and then I would uh, analyse them. It's really hard because I punished myself for all my mistakes. I blamed myself for the problem that I didn't understand in the 1960s and 70s. It wasn't understood. So, but don't do that. Concentrate on what you can do. Moe's a bit like me. Moe's not a, a very tactile person. We don't like, you know, you know, like being touched by strangers and things like that. So he and I had had no physical contact, obviously, throughout the whole of the time that we've been meeting to make the programme. Um, anyway, I, I, as I was leaving, and I went out to the car park, and he was standing in the car park, and he just gave me the biggest hug. <gasps> that was a real privilege. And welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is a naturalist, a broadcaster, a writer, photographer and activist who for 37 years now has been explaining to us the wonders and workings of our natural world. As an anchorman on Spring Watch, Autumn Watch and Winter Watch, he broadcasts with a passion and enthusiasm that's contagious. As an activist and campaigner, his work preserving the natural world sees him lobbying and working for countless charities and in his documentaries exploring autism, first in Asperger's and me and most recently inside our autistic minds. He's become a hugely and highly valued voice for many who struggle to be better understood and supported within that community. 
Born and raised in Southampton, he has one sister, the highly successful fashion designer Jenny Packham. And for as long as he can remember, he's been obsessed with the natural world. Tadpole season was, he says, better than Christmas for him as a child. A high achiever at school, he describes his teenage self as a lonely boy who found solace in punk music and would seek out badgers wearing bondage trousers. After graduating with a degree in zoology, he took the initiative to find work first as a wildlife cameraman's assistant, which soon saw him switch to the front of the camera after auditioning for the children's television show, The Really Wild Show. From there, he's grown from the children's schedule to prime time, steering us through the seasons and all the natural theater it brings. His love of animals far exceeds, he says, most of his human relationships, with the exception of his long-term girlfriend, zookeeper Charlotte Corney, and his stepdaughter, and now co-host, Megan McCubbin, who has been keeping us entertained with him both on Springwatch and Celebrity Gogglebox. They've also written their first book together. It's called Back to Nature, How to Love, Life and Save It, and became colleagues after locking down together at the house he usually lives in alone, deep in the woods of the New Forest, with his dogs, Sid and Nancy. Truly, I am looking forward to this one. Jump inside the fascinating mind with me of Chris Packham. How are you? I'm very, very well, and thank you very much for that. Uh, <laughs> extremely, um, extremely eloquent and maybe mildly exaggerated CV. If you fancy rewriting my book, <laughs> people, please go ahead. <laughs> Do you know what? Don't you make for interesting reading? Well, I, someone said to me once, what do you do? And I said, I really don't know what I do. I just get up and start doing things. Recently, I've been doing some sculpture and printing uh, for, for T-shirt designs for the uh, neurodiverse community. Charlotte says, I always have to have a project. I have to have a project when I wake up. I have to have a project over breakfast. I have a project in the bath. And I probably have a project whilst I'm sleeping. Um, I, I, I'm just one of those... Terminally active people. It's quite boring to be around because you won't get me to sit down. And the idea of a, you know, a beach holiday, no, never. Not in this, not in this universe and lifetime. <laughs> Life's too short for you, isn't it? Do you know what? I think that explains how you came to be the creator of possibly 2023's best calendar. It's the full of shit calendar. And it's about as punk as a naturalist can honestly get, I think, Chris. Tell me how that came to be. <laughs> Well, I, do you know what? I need a project. I needed a project and I was out and about filming. So I couldn't pursue a photographic project. Um, I was at the beck and call of our filming locations. Um, so what I could do was write and draw upon my rather large repertoire of photographs of animal feces, which I'd collected over the years around the world. And of course, every time I've been pointing my lens at a, a pile of poo, people have wondered what on earth is he doing? Well, I stored them up for many years and then um, produced my calendar. But the thing is, you see, that each of the pages in the calendar has a thousand words on it, which explores the scientific importance of that particular type of poo. So we look at bat excrement and we look at snow leopard excrement and in fact it's a very valuable material to scientists for obvious reasons the first thing is you can look into it and and see what the animal's been eating and that's what I was doing actually in those bondage trousers way back in the 1970s and early 80s uh, every Thursday um, I would go to the, the the lab at the university and I would take uh, 12 frozen piles of badger poo which I'd collected the previous Sunday and stored in our freezer at home my mother's freezer um, separate from the peas and carrots 
course. Um, and then I would uh, analyse them. And I, I wanted to see what these two separate groups of badgers were eating. They were living in very different habitats. So that's the very obvious thing. These days, of course, that was the 1980s, I'd be looking at the DNA and I'd be able to identify each of those animals to an individual level. And I'd know what sex they were, maybe what reproductive uh, condition they were in. Um, and that would tell me a lot about not only their contemporary population, but their distant population. So poo is a treasure trove of information for scientists. And that was really the point of my calendar. It was all a bit viz, of course, in terms of its presentation. Yeah, it really is. I mean, there's, there's a 1,200-word breakdown on each poo of the month, isn't there? So that's like 1,200 words is considerable. That's a long read. And then at the end, you can pull all, of the, all that you've learned across the year with your brilliant quiz, Are You Shitting Me? Yes, indeed. So what I did with that was um, I needed to collect a few more. But bird poo is not something that you can collect very easily. I mean, I have a large collection of other, uh, you know, poo. I've got snow leopard. I've got black rhino. I've got tarmac and I've got capercaillie. I mean, lots of poos have been dried and stored in a cupboard in my office for obviously future reference. But bird poo is more difficult to collect. So what I did was I went to the Hawk Conservancy Trust, um, where they keep captive birds for conservation purposes near me. And I, I took some sheets of grey paper and I, I, I arrived first thing in the morning and I placed them beneath the birds perches and then they were fed their, 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 their food and I waited until the end of the afternoon by which stage they pooed all over the grey paper beautiful sort of Jackson Pollock splattering from the red kite in particular um, and then I cut those up and used those for, for the quiz on the back <laughs> Oh I love your mind truly I love your mind no, look, I've got to tell you something else. But what I, I had a few left over, okay, uh, a few of the poo yeah. splattered from the Royal Conservancy Trust. Um, so I had them framed up and I gave them to people as Christmas presents. That's what you get if you're, I mean, I don't have many friends for obvious reasons, but the few friends that I did have at that point, up until that point, um, got, a, got a, a, basically some bird poo to put on their wall. They were framed quite nicely, nice oak frames, I have to say. You know, I had another friend who was quite punk that used to send people poo in a box, um, but not with quite the same thought behind it. She used to send it to anyone who criticised her husband. He was Ozzy Osbourne and she is Sharon Osbourne. <laughs> really? Now, I, I presume that she might have been sending human excrement, which is not as interesting as, say, lynx or wild boar. Or certainly... Yeah, it was all dog poo, but it was mainly, mainly sent was to it? critics and journalists. <laughs> Oh, dear, oh yeah. dear, that's brilliant, actually. Well, look, let me tell you something about dog poo just to chuck some science in. Yep, a lot of your um, you know, listeners may have dogs and they may actually occasionally find their dogs eating poo, other dogs' poo. And it's something that people always question. Obviously, it's perceived as disgusting. And we are rightly you know, repulsed by the smell of poo. We soon learn that that's repulsive because poo basically could contain um, any number of, uh, of parasites or pathogens that we don't want to, to ingest. And that's why dogs are eating the poo. When scientists did some experiments in uh, North America, they found that they would eat the poo if it was two days, up to the time it was two days old. If it was any older than that, wouldn't eat it. And they found that what wolves do is when they come back to the den where their pups are, they will eat any excrement that's there. And this prevents the transmission of internal gut parasites, things like worms, uh, for instance, to their young. So when your dog is eating poo out in the park it's a relict behavior that it's carried from the time that it was a gray wolf about maybe 30,000 years ago so there's a justifiable reason for it ah, i see there's a history to it 
Wow. And tell, talk to me about this, because I started to fall in love with you on the page and then I put you in my ears, Chris. And actually, you're that rare breed for me, a man that sounds better than he looks on the page in as much as you bring your words to life so beautifully. I've really loved learning about the world we live in through your eyes and your words. But then you came to write a book with Megan and I wondered what it was like having to share the page when you're so passionate and so keen to share your knowledge. Well, Megs and I have a, a great friendship. I met her when she was nearly two years old and, um, and we traveled all around the world with, when she was a child. I took her everywhere on location with me. Um, I took her lots of other, to other places. I took her to the ballet and to the opera and, and to the art galleries as well, many castles and things. I wanted to give her a broad outlook, but she spent a lot of time in the back of dusty Land Rovers um, in the pouring rain, waiting for a lion to kill something. Or, um, and, and so she was there with it. Um, we speak very candidly and frankly with one another. I, you know, we have a very robust uh, f friendship. Um, we sort of constantly read each other little bits of our prose out and say, yeah, that's good, or what comes next, and, and things like that. It was, a, it was a joyous process, to be quite honest with you, with absolutely no conflict whatsoever. Isn't that extraordinary? Because do you think you could do that with anybody else, Chris? With such no. ease, such a shorthand? No, I don't. Not a single living soul on earth. I, I, you know, we're not joined at the hip, but we share an outlook on, on, uh, on, on life. And, and I think that what's evolved is that, you know, a, a mutual respect, I suppose. I respect her as the young woman and who she is. And, you know, and we know our sort of faults and, you know, we can tease one another about them without any, you know, recourse. Um, and so that's why I say we can speak very candidly and frankly to one another. And we frequently do. I mean, she's grown up with what my mother described as the most tactless boy in the world. And one of the traits of my type of autism is that we do, in company where we feel trusted and secure, um, speak our minds. So she's known from two years old exactly what I think about everything. And she doesn't come with any expectation of, of me just, you know, pacifying her with some banal small talk. We don't do banal small talk. And, and as a consequence, you know, that's one of the things. Well, we've seen that on Gogglebox. And, and yes. it's lovely to watch you two together. Did you have to think twice about saying yes to that? I can't imagine that somebody that likes to study other life, you wanted to be studied yourself. No, I mean, Megs is a great fan of Gogglebox and I've watched it from time to time. I, I was more worried about the fact that they, they film it in a way where they, and there's no one in the room. You're there with, you know, uh, just some cameras. And, and I do let rip at things. You know, I do say in, in the comfort of my own home, I'm, I'm ruthlessly critical of whatever we're watching, you know, TV, movies or whatever. <laughs> you know, I, I was quite annoyed at myself. I fell asleep during last week's episode and I wanted to see if they, they had commentary from you about the programme that they showed you all, which was, is it cake or is it not cake? Is it a footstool or is it made of cake? And I just thought, I'd love to see Chris Packham get his critiquing chops around this. What did you think of, is it or isn't it cake? I've seen this cake thing on, on, online. I mean, I mean, I love artistry. I, I admire people who hone their It is artistic. Yeah, it, it's an art, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, they hone their skills. to It completely transcends baking, of course. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I do. I have a sneaking admiration for that. But at the same time, I'm asking why. 
And there's a lot of things that you can master in life, a lot of skills that you might be able to master. That's a strange one to choose. But nevertheless, I have a sneaking admiration for people who can make basically a cake look like anything and truly look like anything. So, yes, would I would I want to invest in that level of of skill? Certainly not. No. (laughs) So all of this takes me very nicely to my first question for you. Are you ready, Chris? I am ready. You've said before that your Asperger's has made human relationships very challenging at times, but not with Megan, who, as you've just said, was I think she was 18 months when you first met her. And she's become, you've said, one of the most important parts of my existence. And you you carry with you in your wallet a picture of the two of you uh, that was taken on the first day you met, which I thought was a real rare act of sentiment on your behalf. And the fact that she's now following in your footsteps as a zoologist and literally echoing your work in so many ways it shows you what a profound impact you've had on us so I just wondered if we could explore you and Megan and the pleasure uh, that you've you've garnered from that role as her stepfather one you never went looking for but I've wondered how it's enriched your life and and hers well tremendously I mean, firstly, it started off with redoing all of the things that I'd done as a child, but I would never have otherwise found the time or, or, or to do again, like collecting some tadpoles from a pond, putting them in a jam jar and keeping them on the dining table until they metamorphosed into frogs, like finding a grey squirrel on the side of the road and dissecting it on the selfsame dining table. Well, you know, all of those sorts of things that you know, I would never have done. Like, would I have gone back to the top of St Paul's? Probably not. Um, would I have gone, you know, back to uh, Arundel Castle? I might have done because I have an interest in that sort of history. You know, would I have gone repeatedly to different art uh, exhibitions to introduce her to the whole wide range of, of of painting techniques? Probably not. So, you know, there was a there was a fuel there, and I think when you do it the second time and you're sharing it with someone that you really care about, it adds a completely different level of joy to the experience, and you're seeing it from a different perspective. You're seeing it from an adult perspective. So the investment was enormously enriching. There was there was no doubt about that. But I have to be really clear. I never expected or wanted um, Megan to become a zoologist, and in, and in any way, sort of, she doesn't follow in my footsteps. She treads her own path. But you, you know what I mean. Um, and in fact, up until the point that she met my partner Charlotte. Um, uh, who at that time was keeping a, a, a zoo, which is now a sanctuary, and Megs went to work there, she was intent on pursuing a, a career in drama. And then one evening she <laughs> rang me and she said, I, I need to come round, I've got something to tell you. And I sort of thought, right, it's the exit of the boyfriend or something. Um, and she said, I've completely changed my mind. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I don't want to do drama, I want to do biology. And I said, but hold on a minute, you haven't done the right studies at GCSE and this and that. She said, well, I, I want to go back and do them. And that's what she did. So, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased about that. I, I like, obviously, the fact that she has a, you know, a profound admiration for the natural world, deep-rooted interest in it. She's curious. She's fascinated by it. She's compelled to protect it. Um, another little treasure that I have, courtesy of Megan, is I have a post-it uh, framed on my office uh, table. And I got it one day in 2019. And I'd been out in London with Extinction Rebellion and I got back that night and there was a post-it on the door and it said, gone to rebel. And at that point I thought, okay, job done. There you go. My work here is done. (laughs) But your commitment to her 
is remarkable because you've been separated from her mother um, for over a decade now. I mean, you've been with Charlotte for a long, long time. Uh, and yet you still remain a very big part of her life. You never shirked um, what you'd started as a stepfather. You, you continued that role. And it speaks so well of you that you were able to do that and bring Charlotte into the mix and and that everyone was terribly accepting of it. And I think even more remarkable when you consider how challenging sometimes you find human relationships. Yeah. Um, I think the thing is that everyone always had Megan at the centre of, of, of their decision-making. That was it. We, 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 we all wanted what was best for her. Um, and although we might have disagreed about that from time to time, we, we, we didn't disagree radically. Um, so, you know, I think that we were, you know, given that uh, and that she formed such a profound um, bond with Charlotte straight away. I mean, she dotes upon Charlotte, you know, and, and always has done enormous, you know, admiration for Charlotte. Um, so, she, you know, that she was the right person as well. And they sort of gel completely together. And how is Charlotte? She's still running her, sh she's still running the zoo in the Isle of Wight? Well, she's doing an open university uh, degree at the moment, actually. That, that's, that's, that's really, really brilliant. I, I'm enjoying it. I wish I had time to sort of learn as much about the subject as she is. I mean, we do converse about it, but obviously I'm very much the pupil and she's running her ideas past me. So, yeah, that, that, that's really good. Oh, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear that. Huge respect for somebody going back to start learning again at this stage in life as well. Yeah, I wish I could. I'd love to do that. I mean, in a way I have. So in, in the early part of this year, I took three months off and I hired a lockup, you know, like a sort of a, a small industrial unit. And I started making sculpture and I'm still at it um, and I'm going to stick at it. Um, and it was something that I'd wanted to do since I left university way back in the 1980s. And I'd put it off, put it off, put it off. And I'd been hanging out with a, a very established um, and, and, you know, sculptor produces most beautiful work uh, i've not tried to emulate that in any way a man's got to know his limitations but you know the uh, but you know I, I like his lifestyle and i like the way that he tra transfers his passion he sculpts birds actually and he transfers his passion and distills it into very pure forms and I'd, I'd always admired that so i fancied a go at it so i've kind of sort of gone back to the college of chris in a garage cutting things up and welding them together so it's not an official course um, and I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I'm going to pass with flying colours, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely headlong into sculpture at the moment. Oh, that's so lovely to hear. Um, but good luck to you, Chris. I can't believe that you've managed to take three months out to start something else entirely, because I can't imagine that you go into anything lightly. If you're going to do it, I would imagine you really go there. I really go there, yeah. I mean, I, I, really, I really went there for 15 hours a day. It was freezing cold. <laughs> I, bought a, I bought a camp bed and an electric blanket for the poodles, um, and I started to make things. And, and they yeah, went with you? Yeah. Yeah, I know, of course, they're an integral part of the operation. And um, the, so I started to, to make things, and I soon realised that the difference between two and three dimensions was something that was going to be challenging. I picked really difficult subjects, and the, and the method that I was using was maximising the difficulty. I, 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 I like to set the bar not only high, but actually beyond my reach. Um, because I think it's only through striving, you know, towards things and being ruthlessly self-critical that you improve. And given that I'm 62, I need to improve quite rapidly. So, I, you know, I, I did set the bar high. I'm still not happy with anything that I'm doing, but I'm, I am making progress. And that's what is the driving factor, really. Well, good luck. I, I look forward to seeing what comes of it. I mean, 
If you, you had me at the poo calendar, so the sculpture and the sculpting can only blow my tiny mind, Chris. <laughs> well, I hope it's a little bit more sophisticated than the poo calendar. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The second question, Chris. In your documentary, Asperger's and Mate, you said, if someone said to me, I can cure you of your autism, I would say, no, thank you. And Greta Thunberg has been quoted as saying that being different is very much a superpower. And she's right. When you look at the contribution people who are autistic have made to the world, they're the change makers, the innovators, the disruptors, the men and women who've left their handprint on the world, be it Charles Darwin, Albert Einstein, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Sir Isaac Newton. I mean, the list goes on. So how as a society can we open up our worlds to better support and incorporate those who think differently, those brilliant minds that feel things differently and be supported? Because I don't think we do that very well. No, we've certainly been failing. And and it certainly obviously didn't happen when I was a child in the 60s and 70s. Uh, we, We have moved on significantly. There's a far greater understanding of the condition. And I think obviously... A, a far broader understanding of the condition. I, I went to only this week to uh, a conference, an education conference attended by lots of teachers, head teachers, teaching staff, support staff, so on and so forth, and spoke to an audience of about, I don't know, six, eight hundred people um, about autism and in particular in regard to how they could assist young people who they were teaching um, and children, um, how they could better understand some of their behaviours. I mean, one of the traits that I have is that I have a, a, a very, very 
good memory. I mean, you know, and and so for I remember what it was like being a kid. I remember events in intense detail. And now as an adult, I can articulate the problems that I was faced with then. Obviously, as a child, I couldn't explain it. First, I couldn't explain it because I didn't understand what was going on. And secondly, I couldn't explain it because I couldn't manifest the words. Uh, thirdly, I was a child and trying to get your parents to listen to you when you're rolling around on the floor of a supermarket, throwing things around is quite tricky. So, um, you know, that I hope is a benefit to, to people when adults like myself can can look back and say, look, here, some of the problems that I faced were really quite trivial, and they were they could have been very easily solved. And one of the messages that I was imparting to that audience was that, you know, sometimes it's the subtlest, simplest changes, you know, to a teaching environment that you need to make to accommodate that that child or young person, and they would be actually in real life they would be no big deal at all. Um, I think another problem comes certainly in teenage years when, you know, young people aren't confident enough to say, look, this is me, this is who I am, I am different, I need a different, you know, world to, to facilitate, you know, me being able to roll out my life and the skills that it comes with. Um, and, and, and that was the, certainly the, the toughest time without a shred of a doubt for me, and I think it is for many people, is the teenage years. And we know that there are real problems with underdiagnosis of, of um, young women and girls, because there's a, you know, I'm told, this is what we've learned, that there's a greater social pressure on them than there are for, for boys and young men. And so they develop the technique of masking, hiding their autism, and they do it brilliantly well. You know, in our second programme that we made, you mentioned Inside Our Autistic Minds, we worked with a lady called Flo, and she had hidden, hidden her condition pretty effectively from her mother. Masking. All of, all of her life, yeah, by masking. And, of course, the problem is that it puts enormous pressure on those people. You're doing two jobs at once. You're, you know, you're manifesting... Yeah, it is exhausting. It's absolutely exhausting. What you do is you, you cap the creativity and the ways of thinking. What you, 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 Nobody wins out of that, do they? No. I mean, ultimately, you know, when I was, I remember doing, starting the Really Wild show and I'd been at university not speaking to anyone for three years because that was the best way to avoid conflict, I'd decided. And then I had to go into a working environment where I needed to be a member of a team. I mean, I understood what my, my task was. But I had to manufacture a means of doing it, which meant on a daily basis, I was doing two jobs. I was learning to be a TV presenter speaking about wildlife and, and at the same time, you know, managing myself in a social environment that I wasn't used to so that I could actually be a part of a team and not rejected by that team for very potentially very good reasons. Um, and, but, you know, unfortunately, what we see with, with, with women is that they do this far better for far longer. And the stresses and strains that it puts on their lives are are tremendous and of course very often it results in mental health difficulties um, and and that's something we want to combat so a wider understanding of the condition um, and, and a, a desire to reach out to neurodiverse people and say basically how can we help you and accept that sometimes the help required is so small it's not a big deal you know sometimes it can be of course there are a lot of people who are very much you know more challenged by the condition but very often there, there are simple things that you can do with your you know physical space emotional space um you know temporal space timing things so on and so forth and that's what i was speaking to the you know the education festival about it was about just modifying those things to radically transform the ability of young people to engage and and, and get uh, you know a successful education
One of the guests that we had on the show quite recently featured in uh, one of your programmes, Inside My Autistic Mind, it was Ken Bruce. And we talked at length about the incredible work you did with helping Murray to unlock his own voice. It was so powerful, Chris. So powerful. And it's the first time that they as parents had really been able to bring his thought patterns to life. I mean, that that's a remarkable gift. How involved with you in that and bringing ideas like that to the screen because what it does is it gives people like me who have no real comprehension of an autistic mind a way better understanding of it it was invaluable thank you um yeah we worked as a a brilliant team there were there were people who were diagnosed autistic on the team and people who carried quite significant traits and that was really important i think it's when it comes to, to you know developing a voice for the autistic community it's very important that the autistic community is part of that voice that that's that's very clear so that was a, a, a from the outset that was important I, I was working with a a fantastic director who i'd worked with before called joe miles uh, cough and he is absolutely brilliant we we we, we actually benefited bizarrely by the impositions that covid uh, you know, placed on us because we, we the programme was delayed in, in the starting of filming but we didn't disband the team and it gave longer for everyone to prepare and to find Murray um, and Flo, um, Ethan and Anton and, and, and to also to make sure that all of our contributors were fully supported by their friends, their family, their colleagues and that there was a total buy-in and one of the great joys of the programme was the commitment of the entire team all of the contributors and then all of their friends, families and so forth. Everyone was on mission um, to, and trying to deliver. And, you know, and we kept coming up with ideas and, 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 and kicking them around. But one thing was for sure when it came to Ken's son, Murray, we knew because I'd read what he'd written previously that, that he was an extraordinarily um, eloquent, intelligent young man. Um, He's non-speaking, for if the viewers haven't seen the, the programme. Um, he uses a keypad to type, but he has a, a, a disability, which means that that's physically exhausting for him. And that means that he has to be very precise with his words, because if he wastes words, it, it tires him physic- take, tires him physically. So he basically you know, thinks a lot in advance, and then he types in a very, very... Um, in, as I say, very precise way, um, beautifully, absolutely beautifully. Um, and so facilitating that, given that the other challenges that he faces, was something that we really wanted to, you know, to, to make happen. And it was a joy working with Ken and his wife and family, um, all of them. And, uh, and... and the young autistic actor that you found to voice him, I mean... He's somebody that they've remained in contact with. And I saw Ken this morning, actually. I was in at the radio station. We work at the same radio station. I think as a family, they're so thrilled they did that, Chris. You know, it was it was a huge moment for them. And I'm sure you can appreciate how huge it was. How was it for you sitting there knowing that you had been um, an important ingredient in, in the recipe of finding Murray's voice? Well... I'm not a pat myself on the back sort of bloke. There's always the next job, the next thing to overcome. Um, I've been heartened by the very positive response that the programme had. Um, you know, lots of people have come up and said, thank you, that's opened our eyes, that's given us a better understanding. And that was the mission of the programme. Um, so there was that. But 
at the end, uh, the last thing that we filmed was was uh, Murray's film that we'd made, which he'd, he'd obviously written and, and, and sculpted with our animators and so forth. And... Um, and we we played it, and Murray's a bit like me. Murray's not a, a very tactile person. We don't like, you know, touch, you know, like being touched by strangers and things like that. So he and I had had no physical contact, obviously, throughout the whole of the time that we've been meeting to make the programme. Um, anyway, I, I, as I was leaving, I wanted to say goodbye to everyone, say thanks, you know, so on and so forth. So I spoke to Ken and everyone else. I couldn't find Murray. And um, I went out to the car park. We were in a sort of a rural area. And I went out to the car park and was standing in the car park. So I went up to him and said, Murray, thanks. I hope you thought that went well. And it was absolutely brilliant. And he just gave me the biggest hug. <gasps> it was totally unexpected. And, you know, and I relaxed into it. And, and it was, that was a real privilege, you know, because that, that meant he wasn't able to say, you know, he didn't have his pad with him. He couldn't say anything, but he said everything in that one moment. And that really, I suppose, sort of coalesced the sense of success, if, if I can use that word, um, for all of us when it came to making that series in, in that one hug. Because, you know, we, we'd given Murray a voice. Uh, an important voice, a young man that's yearning to exercise that voice, highly intelligent young man. Um, and hopefully we'd have, you know, he, his mission was to change people's perceptions of him. And he was pleased about it. And, and, you know, sometimes it's just about those one moments. But then other people have said that, you know, they watched that and it's changed their lives as well. So it wasn't just about Murray, it was about many others too. So, you know. It, it was it was incredibly powerful, but the fact that he came and volunteered a hug to you, Chris, I mean that that says everything, doesn't it? And the fact that you were so happy to receive it also speaks volumes too, because like you said, you're not big on being touched and hugged, are you? Not big at all, no. Um, but the the interesting thing for me is that it involved another human and not another species of animal, because most of my career <laughs> I involved. Very rare for you. Yeah, mainly poodles, actually. Poodles. <laughs> I mean, in the intro, I said that you have become a valuable voice for those that need to be better understood and better supported. Um, I know that must come with a heap of responsibility that you never went looking for. But do you understand how important a voice you are for the likes of Murray and how important your work is? Do you think you can see for yourself how significant that is? Uh, not really. I don't, don't look at myself in that way. I'm not a great Chris Packham fan, if you want to know. Um, so I, I'm always very critical. I don't, if you ask me what I'd done that was successful, I, I couldn't even come up with a short list, really. It's always about the next thing. I think that if I'm, if I'm able to say one thing that's mildly self-congratulatory, it would be that what I recognise is that I have been given a voice because I have become a broadcaster, um, and I do use that voice to try and affect what I think is good. You know, I don't go home, I don't take the money, go home, open a bottle and put on a movie. Um, you know, I... I yeah. People say you walk the walk, that's an expression they use, you know. I care about the environment, I campaign for the environment, 
in, in, to the point of exhaustion. I care about, you know, particularly autistic teenagers because that was a time when I had suffered enormous mental health difficulties myself. I don't want any more people to be going through that. It's unnecessary. We should have changed and, and the world should have moved on. So if I can use my own small voice to try and make the world a better place for them and for wildlife and the environment, then that's my duty. And, and, I, and I'll stick to that duty until, you know, I run out of, I run out of breath, you know. You do do it so well because you, and you know, I know from speaking to Ken, but also, you know, my son's best friend is um, autistic and um, his mum and dad sat down and watched your programmes and wept and wept and wept. Just the relief of being understood, the relief of having something to show other relatives to say, see, even he says this, it's, it's affirmation, it's backup, it's support, it's all of those things. It's massive. You probably are unable to, well, of course you're unable to see that because it reaches far beyond you, but it's there. I can tell you that. I'll pass on all those comments to the team because it wasn't, I mean, again, you know what it's like. As a presenter, it's not all about you. There's an enormous number of people working very, very hard and putting enormous effort, energy and skill and you're the bit that focuses it through the camera. And obviously I had a role to play in that programme and my principal role was to allow, you know, the contributors, Flo, Ethan, Anton and, and Murray, to express themselves because they're not, you know, broadcasters and you know and, and I was there to facilitate their their um, voices as it were and um, and and I took that job really seriously that's that's that that was my role you know and I I, I wanted that to, to happen yeah and you know on that note I mean let's let's just pause here right so you know something that you deal with is natural history right let's just talk about history in general when we look at as I said earlier you know the greatest inventors the disruptors the change makers uh, the world has ever known. So many of them are autistic men and women. And you only have to look at the contributions they make. I mean, it's never been more so evident than, than say, in tech right now, which is transforming the world at a pace that honestly makes the Industrial Revolution look a little bit sluggish, doesn't it? History will remember this very well and very differently to how we're living it, actually, I would imagine. I mean, it's hard in some you know, deeper history um, because we can't really retrospectively diagnose people, but we can if they've kept documentation. You know, we can be pretty, you know, pretty sure about those sorts of things. I mean, I think in, if we want to take it to really simple terms, people say that in order to, um, you know, come up with great ideas, you have to think outside the box. But with people like myself, there is no box. There's not even something to think outside. We, we, we don't see any constraints. In a way, everything is possible. Um, and that leads us to explore, take risks, frankly, probably a lot more than, than, than um, perhaps some people do. Um, take chances, go down the wrong avenue, but then just turn around and keep at it. And we are dogged, task-centric, um, you know, quite didactic, uh, very determined, aggravated sense of injustice. Um, all of those things are basically fuel for the sorts of people who believe in... Well, not, I was going to say themselves, but it's not often themselves, believe in something that they're driven to do. Um, and, and that, again, I suppose that collection of, of commonality in, in the traits is probably one of the reasons why we have, you know, many scientists and taxonomists and artists in the past of, of, of many time uh, sorts who, who were probably neurodiverse. 
I wonder how many women are at top tables who are undiagnosed autistic because they still haven't got to that point in their life where they either wish to explore that um, or feel that they need to explore that. Um, and I imagine that there would be an, an equal number, if not more, to be honest. It's a really good point because you're right. People like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and Bill Gates there's been many conversations around whether they are or they aren't uh, autistic, but you're quite right, that massive number of women that go undiagnosed that just look like they're juggling or coping or pushing on through, that's, that's fascinating. Maybe in years to come, we'll see that really that, that imbalance be redressed. I hope so. That's one of the most significant challenges we face, I think, at the moment. If I, we were to focus on one thing, I would say it would be, you know, young girls and women and making sure that they get the proper support rapidly enough in their lives so that they don't have to carry those difficulties throughout the, the, the challenging parts of their life. Talking about young minds, that takes me to my third and final question for you. Here we go. As a teenager, for two years, you've said that the only words you spoke during your school day were 20p, please, twice a day to the school bus driver. Uh, you said that you withdrew almost into a silence as you struggled through some really difficult teenage years. And, and you've certainly touched upon this with me in this interview. Yet despite the many challenges uh, that you face in interacting with others and the challenges that communicating presents, you've gone on to find yourself talking to millions live, which is terrifying on national television for years now. So having had no voice, you touched on it earlier, you had to find a way to have one. And now your voice captivates audiences. You know, I found myself stopping in the street with you in my ears, Chris, as I listened to your audiobooks. You literally have the ability with your comms to stop me in my tracks. How did you do that? And how can other young, muted, teenage, brilliant minds learn from you? Um, I was always very determined. I, I always had sort of uh, fixed ideas about what I wanted to do. Not that they stayed fixed very long, but whilst they were there, they were fixed. So my obsessive, determined personality would have been part of that. Um, I mentioned an aggravated sense of injustice, and I think that's a commonality that we see. And I think that's what makes us activists and protesters. When we see people doing things which are very obviously wrong or getting away with doing things which are very obviously wrong, we are enraged by that. And I've already mentioned, you know, the fact that, you know, as children, we might be perceived as tactless. We speak our minds without recourse because we think it's important to tell the truth. The truth is, is, is incredibly important to us. Um, but we're also quite shrewd and we're intense observers of other people. Um, so we can figure out, as we've been discussing with young women masking, we can figure out how to fit in and, and find a way. Um, I never imagined a, 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 you know, a, a job in television, for instance, communicating. Um, it was something that came sideways. Uh, what, 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 what it comes from is a passion to share my, my fascination for the natural world. And, and that's become very much vocational, certainly in the sort of second part of my life, because the natural world's been in such a perilous state. And if I, if I can't engender an affinity for it and make people care about it, then I'm not going to be able to stop them in the street and ask them to protect it. So, you know, I'm mission led. It's mission central. So actually finding your passion, if you're a young autistic person and you find your passions, that's, that's the first way to start unlocking, do you think, your ability to find a voice because you feel compelled to talk up? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the one of the problems that we faced in the past, and I hope it's diminishing now, is that when people speak about autism, they focus on the problems and the difficulties and the disabilities. Um, I'm, you know, and was absolutely clear at the outset when we were making both of the programmes that we've been discussing, Asperger's and me, and Inside Our Autistic Minds, that, you know, my role, would, I, would, I'd only have been there if we were talking about some of the positive aspects of that as well. And you've touched upon those this, this evening as well. So I think one of the things I say to young people is, look, don't let people drag you down with all the difficulties. Don't focus on those yourself. It's really hard because I punished myself for all of my mistakes. I blamed myself for the problem that I didn't understand in the 1960s and 70 wasn't understood you know I generated levels of self-loathing that gave rise to enormous mental health issues so but don't do that instead of being dragged down by the things that you can't do you may not be good at socializing you may not be good at communicating there could be a whole plethora of things concentrate on what you can do you know if you are skillful when it comes to pattern you know mathematical patterns or or painting or you know taxonomy which is essentially one of the things that you know I might have an aptitude for classifying the natural world looking at it in detail figuring out how it works you know it's that sort of the detailed vision that I, I might have that might be one of my greatest assets so the fact that I'm tone deaf and can't play a musical instrument and I'm useless at party because all I want to do is stand in the corner and look at my phone um, <laughs> don't worry about those focus on what you can do no. no, that's just it's very simple advice, but it's. I think sometimes people need to see it and hear it from somebody that's done it, and you are it. And yeah, just just the fact that you get on TV and you're able to step like if, if you were to tell your teenage self that you would broadcast to millions on live television, would you have even considered that to be possible? No, not at all. Not in the slightest, no. My teenage self was in a very dark place, and I don't imagine that. And my teenage self didn't even want to talk to the world, didn't want to talk to my mum and dad, let alone the next-door neighbour or the kids at school. Teenage self, the only way it needed, it knew to look after itself was to hide away. And that meant hiding away in the bedroom, reading very depressing poetry, or hiding away on its own out in, out in the woods and the fields where there were no other people. And that's why I probably have such a profound, you know, affection for... For different species I feel secure in their presence they never hurt me they never betrayed me or you know uh, and so on and so forth and I, I do have uh, significant relationships with the animals that have shared my life my dogs at the moment you know you know I've got Sid and Nancy now itchy and scratchy before playing very plump prominent parts of my life and we see that in again you know particularly with dogs companion animals um, in people with autism which is c comparable to to mine so no the teenage self would have never believed that but then the teenage self couldn't see light at the end of any tunnel. And that's another thing that I would say to y these young people, that it does get better. I know it can, it can be implausible, but the more control that I've been able to take over my life from the moment I left home, or even before that, from the moment that my parents gave up on my bedroom and just let it be my space, and then I leave home and I control my space even more, and my time more critically, um, the more control that I've been able to take over my life, the easier it's become, the less anxious I've been as a, as a person. And, and when I think back as an adult, you know, in, in certainly in recent years, the things which have caused me the greatest uh, uh, distress have been things which have, I've been unable to control, like my dogs dying. I couldn't control that. They were going to die. I couldn't stop it. I, don't, I did everything I could, obviously, to stop that happening, but I couldn't. And when they did die, it, it didn't go well. 
So I think that, you know, control, and I don't read it the wrong way, we're not control freaks in a nasty, manipulative way. We're trying to shape our environment and our life so that we can minimise stress and find respite and solace in some places so that we can actually live our lives. That, that's what it's about. Yeah. Find places, pockets of peace. But we all do that. And, and I, I found... The idea of you only saying 20p, please, twice a day to a bus driver for a couple of years is so sad to me. And, and it must have been so hard for your parents to watch you struggle through that and your sister. Um, and I'm so pleased that you're through it, Chris, because the hope that just this exchange will give so many people that just are sat under a cloud right now. It's just really important to say this stuff, I think. So I hope so. Good on and it yeah, I mean, I didn't. I wasn't enjoying. I mean, I was enjoying my education. Don't me wrong. I love learning. I still love learning. It's the best part of my life. You know, I was talking to Megs yesterday. That's the the greatest thing is that you know, particularly if you have an interest in the natural world, you you're never going to run out of new things to learn, and and that's fantastic. But the but the learning environment, yeah, was 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 challenging. There's no there's no question about that. Oh, can I say that I was unhappy? Um, well, I think happiness is always a fleeting thing. It's pretty ephemeral. And there were times when I was enormously happy. Um, they just came at different times than most other people. You know, they were when I was out on my own and in the pouring rain and watching kestrels do their stuff, you know, and I, I was euphorically happy. So I, I can't tell you everything was abjectly miserable, but it was just maybe happiness at different places in, at different times. It's not difficulties, it's differences, isn't it? It's, it's just changing the language on things. Instead of saying, oh, they have learning difficulties, you say, they have learning differences. They, they learn differently to you. You know, just little tweaks like that can make such a difference. Do you not think? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, very much so. I mean, Greta says that her autism, I saw her recently actually, and she said she didn't say it, but whatever. She's quoted for saying um, that her autism is a superpower. I say that mine is a gift, but sometimes when you open it, you don't get what you want. And you have to live with that. Sometimes that, you know, I'm, I'm incapable of doing things that most people would consider every day, commonplace things. And, and if I've learned to do them, they, it comes at the cost that I'm devoting a lot of energy and effort into doing it. And, I'm, and I'll probably now as an adult be quite resentful of that. Um, but then there are other things, and this is what we're saying to the young listeners, is that there are other things which I, I can do. I can remember things in implicit detail. I can see things in great detail very, very quickly and, 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 you know, and, and build pictures of them that will last a lifetime. Um, I, I, I've, this, you know, everyone has those sorts of uh, abilities. It's just a question of staying focused, and also in in the educational environment, facilitating that. Because you know, I didn't like the bell going. If I'd been set a task and then the bell went, I could I didn't understand that. I wanted to finish the job. I didn't want to go to French. I was halfway through doing something in geography. That didn't make any sense. Yeah, it's a really good point. You know. So I struggled with the routine of the way that the lessons were divided because I'm so task centric. I need if I if I'm if I've been set a task, I want to finish it. You're quite right. Oh, I really I really hope that you continue to talk about this, to write about this. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. I have really looked forward to this hour and it has not disappointed. Um, continued success with everything you do. And if there's ever any way in which I can help, please call me up. Because wow. I'm there. Hold on. Hold on. Now there's an offer. I won't be able to no, refuse. Seriously. Seriously. We all need to exercise our voice at this point, and whatever we have a passion for, it's time to stand up and count it. 
You bring to my attention things that I would otherwise miss. That's really important. You're a town crier for the planet. And I think that's just what we need right now. Keep ringing that bell. Thank you very much. I will. I'll, I'll, I'll be ringing it as loud as possible. You can, be, you can rest assured of that. My huge thanks to Chris. His book with Megan, Back to Nature, How to Love Life and Save It, is available now wherever you get your books. And you can find his brilliant calendar. It's called the Full of Shit Calendar at his website, chrispackham.co.uk. And he's got a special offer on because it's halfway through the year. It's buy one, get one free. For other episodes with brilliant thinkers, we've got the poet Lem Sisse, Griff Rees-Jones, Alistair Campbell, Dr Alex George, Sir Tony Robinson, the Reverend Kate Botley, David Lammy MP, Jess Phillips MP and Ken Bruce in our back catalogue. And I'll be back on your feeds with another midweek drop of Something from the Cellar on Tuesday and a brand new episode for you on Friday. Until then, thanks for listening. White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the ACAST Creator Network. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.